and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. And I'm Anna. And today we have Courtney. Hi. Courtney, welcome to the show. Courtney is a history PhD who's going to be joining us today to talk about her research, her life as a researcher, and hopefully share a funny anecdote from her research life as well. (laughs) So, Courtney, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in Manchester studying what you're studying? Yeah, sure. So I'm technically a fourth-year PhD candidate. I'm in my submission pending period. As Georgia said, I study history. I do cultural gender history. We can get to that after. I'm from Canada, and I've got a really long history uh, with Manchester. I came over here during my undergraduate for an exchange term for about four months. I fell in love with it. I really enjoyed learning about spatial history from Frank Mort while I was over here. So when I went back to Canada, I ended up doing an extra two years because I took human geography to complement my history degree. Then when I was looking for master's programs in, I think, 2013, 2014, I looked over in the UK just because Postgraduate study in Canada is very difficult sometimes to get into unless you've got a publication, which obviously I didn't because I was taking every single course under the sun at my undergraduate university. So I looked at the at the UK uh, and Manchester just kind of stood out against schools in London, schools in Scotland, because the program, um, again, the big focus on cultural history was really a draw. So I did my master's here and then following that I went straight into the PhD and that's where I'm at right now. So yeah, just currently running towards that final goal in September. So you're our first guest who's in their submission pending year. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, and I mentioned that, that you've had lots of, well, not, I shouldn't say younger, but earlier mm, year yeah, students. Lots, lots of first years, especially. Mm. So what is your submission pending year like? It's been interesting. I kind of think of it not so much as my submission pending, just because the first year of my PhD was, which we'll get to when we're talking about well-being, was a big nightmare. And I'm kind of making up for just an entire lost year. But so far, it's been good. Not too different from how it was before. I know that it's, they kind of painted as though you have a lot less supervision and a lot more freedom. But the PhD itself seems like a lot of freedom to just go off and do your work and then check in every once in a while to make sure you haven't died. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been pretty good so far. Pretty chill. Uh, it's really nice to not have any more research to do and just force myself to write, which, you know, is its own thing. Yeah, that's true. Although, it, everyone is either a researcher or, or a writer, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's for me, I don't really like doing the research and I do like doing the writing. Oh, we're opposites then, yeah. yeah. So I say it's nice to not have to do research. I mean, it's nice to not have to go on research trips. Mm. But yeah. I don't know. I, I do tend to kind of, I'm really interested when I'm finding out what the answer to the question I'm posing mm. is. And then I'm not interested in it anymore. Mm. I know what the answer is. <laughs> exactly. I've and it. It's in your head. So why would you have to write it down? Yeah. So that's actually so uh, another thing to add to about me. So after the submission pending period, I'm actually going to get a master's of archival studies back in Canada. So now I just got to finish this, and then I can go and be an archivist, and then my entire life can just be doing research for other people, and then they can do whatever they want with it. <laughs> I don't have to write anything up about it. Yeah, because everything I ever wrote, uh, read, written by an archivist is mostly like a personal anecdote. They're mm. like, well, I was organising this archive and this is what I did. Yeah. And that's kind of pretty much it. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to having that be my life or just people coming in and asking me to learn about their family for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So 
you uh, just before we started recording, you were talking a little bit about your research, and it sounds fascinating. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that, please. Yeah, no worries. So I'm studying the girl detective in British, bleh, sorry, the girl detective in British popular culture and society, circa 1900 to 1960. Um, the like seed for that project was my original project was on the vigilante in British popular culture. Uh, my secondary supervisor is Eloise Moss, and she writes a lot about burglars. Georgia's Georgia's clutching her chest like, oh, I love her. I love her too. Uh, So I really like this idea of character types and kind of what ideas and meanings they produce for the people who read them. Vigilante didn't end up working very well because the term wasn't really used in Britain until American pop culture starts coming over. So it slowly morphed into the child detective, or sorry, amateur detectives, child detective, and then the girl detective because... As we all know, being historians, it goes men's experiences, women's, boys, and then girls at the very bottom. So it's the girl detective in British culture. Uh, I look at it from a perspective of how girls are trained to be part of a citizenry that is very focused on surveillance in the modern era, uh, increasingly so since the First World War, and then also how the different articulations and representations of the girl detective across different media and different time periods reflect ideas about femininity, girlhood, girl culture, and whatnot. So I look at the girl guides, interwar girls stories papers, Nancy Drew, which I know is American, but in the British context, and Enid Blyton. So in terms of readerships of those books, Mm -hmm. because obviously they were written with the target audience in mind, is it do you find it's largely a female audience that was expected to read those books or were those books kind of aimed at children in general? Enid Blyton definitely is more of the kind of generalized one, but with the Nancy Drew films, the interwar girl story papers and obviously the girl guides, it is very much girl specific material that's being made to complement and keep girls away from boys material. Mm-hmm. So obviously girl guides there's just a, there's a plethora of information about how it was they can't be acting like boys, they can't be doing boys stuff. We have to give them a girls option. Girls story papers, it's all interwoven with ads for makeup and or very low-key makeup, um, grooming products, whatnot. And then the Nancy Drew films, I found that the promotional material is very much geared towards girls. Um, so yeah, no, it's very much a girls' readership. Probably lower middle to middle class. Yeah. And uh, not that it's entering too much into the analysis, but white, white British. Mm. Yeah. So does this include things like Famous Five and yes. Secret Seven? Yes. The Enid Blyton is definitely just the the mystery steer- series. So Secret Seven, Famous Five, and the Five Find, Outer- Find Outers, which wasn't as well known, but it's <laughs> similar to Famous Five, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but more focused on finding things Finding out. things, yeah. <laughs> um, so... It has been a very long time since I read a Famous Five book, but I did read a few growing up. They had a tomboy character in there who went by George. It's very influential on me Mm -hmm. uh, at a particular time. Um, But I do remember that, so it's it's like a mixed-gender group, right? But they come into contact with some real danger. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of an interesting idea to be thinking about in terms of the, the girl detective. How, what types of danger do you find in these narratives and... Uh, it's odd, especially with Enid Blyton, that 
compared to other uh, children's literature around the time, it is, yeah, like you said, real danger and the children being put into spaces and situations where it's actual criminals they're interacting with rather mm -hmm. than just, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say it, just mishaps. Or even if you think of Harry Potter as like a mystery novel where they just kind of are encountering things that aren't real crime. So yeah, it'd be things, uh, a surprising amount of gunplay, which is odd uh, for a children's book, but also for the UK. Physical peril. And then obviously, since I'm reading first editions from the 19, late 1930s and 40s, interactions with racial others, usually gypsies. Just... Uh, everything that you'd kind of expect from someone like Enid Blyton writing mm. at that time. Yeah, because um, I, I never read, having grown up in a non-anglophonic context, mm. I never read um, any of the Enid Blyton novels. Mm -hmm. But um, this summer I went to see uh, an improv show called Bumper Blyton, which is basically an oh, improvised nice. Enid Blyton novel because a friend of mine was performing in it. Mm. Um, oh, and there's those those books now that are that you always see at, the, at like um, Blackwell's where it's parodies of Enid Blyton. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so that was kind of my, my first experience with it. And it was, it it's incredibly kind of fascinating in the ways in which kind of narrative is constructed, especially since as a child, I really liked child detective novels mm -hmm. um, because I quite like crime novels mm -hmm. um, but I don't really like crime movies because they're too gory for me <laughs> I, I like reading about it I don't yeah like yeah you don't want to see it, it. yeah yeah um, so yeah um, so it's 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 really really interesting in ways the ways in which the narrative is constructed mm -hmm. and the ways in which kind of gender dynamic is constructed at this stage when it's a very different dynamic, I think, from adults. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before that they end up interacting with, like, the Famous Five in particular and the Secret Seven end up interacting with real criminals, mm -hmm. um, which kind of suggests that in other areas of your research there's a kind of girl detective narrative that involves some kind of detective work that isn't based in real crime. So what kind of other scrapes and things were girl detectives getting into it's well it's the the ones where it is not it's specifically called a girl detective because the children's mystery genre was going on in a lot of these stories especially you see it in the girls story papers where the majority of it is um school girl stories mystery seems to be a very strong narrative driver for all of these because it's interesting it's something to get children to read um and to then instill whatever kind of messages and meanings about gender you're trying to enforce. But with the detective ones, where they're either serving as amateur detectives or pseudo-professional detectives, as much as a girl can act in that uh, profession, detective ones, it will be more things like theft or spies or not so much murder, but just mysterious deaths. So that's, that's what I found really interesting with this project is that you have crime, which in itself is a very adult world, being used to teach girls lessons about various aspects of femininity, but also their responsibility in society. The other thing that seems really interesting to me about your project is that it, it seems to employ like a really diverse source base. You're kind of making use of literature and sort of cultural products, but there's also this thread about the, the girl guides and stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where you found your sources? What sources have surprised you? This is going like way back. This is like three years ago now. So I think 
Yeah, it was when we decided to switch from the child to the child detective. Ina Blyton was the first focus that my supervisor suggested, uh, which to me, because like you, Anna, I'd never, even though I'm from Canada, uh, they weren't really reading for us. We had more Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys. Um, My mom, though, knew of the series. I guess her teacher when she was young was from the UK. So yeah. Uh, So we started with that. I started reading those. And then just through branching off from that, thinking Girl Detective, couple searches. Yeah, and just kind of stumbled on the girl story paper ones, which are Sylvia Silence, Lila Lyle, Valerie Drew, which if that name sounds familiar, it's pretty much a direct ripoff of Nancy Drew, um, but British. Uh, and then Girl Guides kind of came about because just, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm racking my brain trying to remember how we got onto those specific items. But yeah, no, just kind of snowballed from there and how I found all of them and then from there having to find specific archives that would be worthwhile sorry (laughs) no it's um it's really interesting Mm. and with your periodization you say you end kind of in the mid 20th century is there a reason for that as a cutoff point that was more just because the final chapter is on Enid Blyton and around 1960 I believe is when the last of the series that I'm looking at, that's the last of the publication, and then they just start being reprinted over and over again. So yeah, we just did circa 1960 and decided to cut it off there, because obviously if it was including the girl guides, it could go into the present, mm. um, but you have to find some point where you just cut it off. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking maybe this kind of seems facetious, but there is, there's a continuity into things like Scooby-Doo as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the sort of, the move from mystery being about crime to being a bit more sort supernatural. of supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, like certainly kind of around this period, you get a lot more, you know, ghost stories and Mm. stuff like that, I guess. Mm. And it's it's also interesting how that kind of relates to wider kind of girl literature, you know, Little Women, Anne of Green Gables, kind of girl protagonist stories Mm. and how they kind of interact with the world. And especially in professional context, Mm. it's, it's quite interesting mm-hmm. yeah i guess the mystery narrative kind of speaks to curiosity that resonates with children yeah. and you know there's there is an age where everything sort of has the character of a mystery exactly it? because yeah. there's this world of adults out there that you are on the periphery of and starting to understand but people still behave in ways that are very sort of you're you're sort of solving that mystery day by day yeah So has there been anything that's kind of turned up in your research that really surprised you? I suppose I, so I happened to find that there's another study of the boy detective, of child detective, but from the boy detective perspective by Lucy Andrew. And she looks at Penny Dreadfuls and boy story papers and how the boy detective has developed since the mid 19th century. And I found that interestingly, the boy detective has even though that it's a longer span of time that he's been around, like it becomes more domesticated and contained, whereas the girl detective kind of explodes onto the scene around the time the girl guides are introduced in the first decade of the 20th century and kind of has a consistent maintenance of intensity in terms of the adventure and the pseudo-violence and whatnot. Um, And it's more of a... It becomes more fantastical as time goes on whereas the the boy detective narrative was kind of becoming more realistic until you get Enid Blyton and I found that 
quite interesting. But then also that's because, as Andrew argues, that, you know, these stories were meant to be educating, like, seriously educating boys on what stuff that they could do because they could grow up and become detectives. So it made sense to give them things that were a little more realistic. So it's like, if you become a policeman, you're not going to be doing crazy things. But, you know, you can do this stuff. Whereas for girls, it's kind of, well... You're never going to become a police detective, so you might as well just read stories where you're flying planes and parachuting into bad guy layers and all kinds of stuff. One of the things that we talk about every episode is we talk to uh, our fellow PhD researchers about sort of research well-being and what PhD life is like. Now, earlier in the episode, you kind of alluded to the fact that you had a really challenging first year (laughs) of your PhD, so um, we're hoping to kind of... Yeah, if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, as I said at the top, I transitioned from my master's degree directly into my PhD. So I guess I had about two weeks between submission and starting the PhD. I've always been a perfectionist. And so far in my academic career, that's been pretty helpful and been able to produce good work. But I think the loose structure of the PhD, not having classes, not regularly being taught something and sparking kind of discussion really started to wear down on me. So the first year where I was trying to get this vigilante project sorted out, I was very frustrated, very stressed out. And then I started kind of falling into this weird cycle of anxiety. So I'd get up in the morning, try and work, not produce anything, get to the end of the day, I'd be sad about it, would get anxious about the next day. And it just kept spiraling on and on and on. So at the end of my first year, I, where was my first year? Yeah, around then I kind of, I call it my, my breakdown. It wasn't a breakdown, but it was just a mo- it was just finally getting to the point where I was mentally exhausted, couldn't get anything done. I took, I was also in the middle of a breakup, moving house. Uh, I ended up taking a month just to go home and try to do some work, but like not, like it was more reading and uh, secondary research. So when I came back, I made the decision that I needed to go and see the University Counseling Service, got in touch with them, got in touch with the GP. Yeah, no, it was it was, it was very challenging. Since then, it's been a lot better. I'm on medica- med- medication now, which helps a lot with the anxiety, setting smaller deadlines and whatnot. It's still a struggle sometimes to get work done just because, as we said, I, once the research is done, I don't really feel like writing. <laughs> If it's going to research, I'm like, oh, yeah, research trip. Great. Sounds like so much fun and like looking at stuff. But uh, sitting down to write is always a bit annoying, especially because in my brain it's perfect. But then on paper, it's not. But no, I always just I've I've talked to lots of first years, too, and just told them, you know, it's not going to always be great. And when you when you run into people at the university, they're always going to, you know, everyone wants to put on the best face about how everything's going. I just kind of gave up on doing that and go, yeah, it's fine. If it's not, it's not. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, that was rambling. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't at all. And it's, um, I think it's a story that to a greater or lesser degree is familiar to a lot mm. of people in first year. I was exactly the same in that I sw- went straight from my master's to my PhD. Mm. And that was, um, so yeah, I submitted my dissertation. I, and then like 16 days later started the PhD so it was another three months until I got my grade more or less yeah so you're kind of spending that time wondering oh am I about to find out that I'm not supposed to be here yeah am I, am I uh, did I slip through the cracks like do they are they going to find out yeah. yeah 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 and it really contributes to those feelings of imposter syndrome mm. that anxiety about being good enough doing enough work mm-hmm. and sort of uh 
yeah, like there was definitely more than a couple of weeks where I would just doing anything seemed almost impossible. So it's mm. it's a really challenging transition to make. I know mm-hmm. you had the same experience, Anna, of going straight from masters to PhD. Yeah, that was an, an interesting life choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I well, see. The thing is, I've I've recently been to these. Um, kind of workshop conference thing mm. and I was afterwards making friends um, as as you do and th- there have been some really lovely people there there is a, a lecturer called Jennifer Bond and I really hope she signs things J Bond <laughs> like I really do <laughs> I would yeah like I mean it would be amazing um, but um, and she um and she was kind of really surprised about how young I was. And mm-hmm. that was because kind of I went straight through my undergrad, then straight into my master's, mm-hmm. then straight into a PhD. Mm-hmm. And not having a summer holiday is a really bad idea. Yeah. That's a really, really, really bad idea. Yep. <laughs> and um, I've recently been engaging with kind of academic Twitter a lot more. And one of the main things that a lot of kind of supervisors highlight, and especially kind of in the US where... Usually people do two-year masters, so they submit around June time. They say, spend the, the summer taking time off, mm-hmm. have, you know, a nice vacation, mm-hmm. relax. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of the time I think you don't do yeah. before a PhD. Now, I've been lucky that my supervisors have been very supportive throughout the whole process of, even when, before we kind of got the diagnosis of, huh, intense stress um of just reminding me to take time to myself um whenever we make schedules for timetables for submission and everything they always block off uh easter break and whatnot and tell me to just kind of take it easy i never do but no it's yeah it's 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 weird to think of stuff like that especially as an adult because you know when you're younger it's like oh man when i become an adult like i don't get my summer vacations anymore i don't get this and that but we really forget to take advantage of that opportunity that even though we're not like we're supposed to be studying and whatnot it's nice to have some time to ourselves and i mean even in that kind of real adult life where <laughs> you have a job and aren't a student yeah people still take holidays yeah, they'll exactly. still take I forget about that sometimes. they'll still take two weeks at least yeah. a year to actually take some time to themselves yeah. so it's yeah in a way i think we can accidentally fall into these sort of uh like oh this is this is it now and this is how it has to be mm-hmm. uh and it can be a bit toxic if we're yeah no i'll definitely i'll i attempt to work most days but it's definitely transitioned from that first year where it was i have to do work every single day monday to friday and now it's more kind of some days i'll wake up and i'll just think to myself nah nothing's gonna get done today and even if i do like if i try to sit down and do some work it's not gonna be great or it's just gonna be staring at the computer so i might as well just go do something else yeah, so, yeah. especially when you're in kind of the writing phase some yeah. days you'll just have a day when you're on fire and then you can just put it in the bank yeah and exactly save it up for another time yeah and i think also a big part of my well-being uh, especially in the last two years is getting to the realization that i am not going to be a professor and i'm not going to be doing academia with an institution um uh, having conversations with my supervisors they have pointed out that my best work and i seem happiest is when i'm doing research Uh, And so from that, we kind of worked out, what do I want to do with this PhD? I'm not good at presenting. I'm not good at public speaking. 
like, this is fine because it's just the two of you. <laughs> Uh, and I, yeah, I, so that's why I think art, like doing archives is going to be a better, uh, fit for me. I'm still enjoying the fact that I will be a doctor because who wouldn't like to get to put that, especially since we have what miss or Ms on form. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't assume that. I shouldn't assume pronouns. Sorry. No, but, yeah, well, no. you assumed correctly okay. in this yeah. case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's. It'll, it, I'm happy to have done the PhD. It's definitely been a learning experience, but I've learned the limitations uh, of my my professional skills, but also just what my mental health can handle. Mm. So, also like archival work is incredibly fascinating. Oh yeah, um, it's like being it's like being a detective. <laughs> it is like being a detective. <laughs> you get to just search through stuff and like yeah. Because recently I've been kind of looking around quite a lot in John Ryland's library on things which are not necessarily directly related to a project mm. but just things I find fun and interesting yeah. and it's it's been great fun mm. especially since so there, there is this mystery of um I had one item taken out and it's it's 21 volumes and a kind of note that comes with it mm. but it's divided into boxes mm. and the boxes start numbering from C so where are A and B? Nobody knows. And I've asked the guy who was like in the archive and he was like, oh, that seems weird. And he sent me an email saying, I don't know where A and B are. Yeah. And fascinating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember the very first time we did an archive class in my undergrad, they made a big point about it's not like the library. If you give up, if you take something out, you have to give it back to us because if it gets put on the shelf, we're never going to find it again. And so that's always really that's always been in the back of my mind, but then it also provides opportunities for just treasure hunting, detective work. So yeah, I hope they find A and B because, you know, the long lost tomes. Oh, uh, like, so So the thing is, the all of the volumes that are going to are there, mm. they're like numbered, and it also seems like a better preserved edition of another copy that is there in the oh, library. Okay. But I'm just interested, like when they were numbering it, mm. um, because that's a book that's been that's been inherited from Lancashire Independent College. Oh, okay. But it's an edition of 1823 Bible in Chinese that was published in I think Macau, maybe yeah, um, mm. but somewhere there. And um, it's you know. It's very interesting just, just why they thought that they will start numbering from mm. C. <laughs> I think it's really interesting as well to meet someone who is doing this and knows that career in academia is yeah. not uh, the direction because I think that it's it's definitely changing. I, I'm not even sure that it's the majority now, but lots of people who are doing a PhD are doing it with the eventual goal of, you know, a professorship. Mm-hmm. Or a, a lectureship, mm. and so I think it's it's just important to bear in mind that we gain so many skills in this experience mm. that just aren't limited to finding and reading documents or presentations or writing. Yeah. It's a it's a very intense sort of skills building experience mm. that we get to uh, take part in, and so it's good to hear that you. <clears throat> it's good to hear that you've got a sort of alternate uh directions to go once you get the uh, the doctor at the front of your name yeah well i mean too it's i've kind of my family likes to joke that i'm just the professional student because i took six years to finish my undergrad because i kept changing majors uh ended up with two and then you know 
the nice thing about the UK is I've been able to kind of catch up with everyone back home since the master's was one year and the PhD has been three, now four. But yeah, no, I just, I, I kind of stayed in academia with no real goal other than I like learning. And so thankfully, even though the PhD is not leading to a professorship because I'm not competitive enough to deal with stuff like that. It's going to turn into, it's one, one more degree, one year, and then I can be an archivist and maybe finally have a job by the time I'm 33. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I've got everything crossed for you. <laughs> <laughs> My dad will be happy to hear that. <laughs> finally, uh, one of the last things we ask every guest on the podcast is to share some kind of funny anecdote or story from your research life. So if you uh, have something to share with us. It's not extremely funny. It's the only thing that's coming to mind at the moment. Two years ago, I was at the Scottish National Library looking for old editions, first editions of Enid Blyton. And I have a tendency whenever I'm researching to kind of just put my headphones in, zone out, because you're just sitting there taking mad pictures. And I had my laptop open and I was watching uh, episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) And I was not paying attention to the world around me. And then <laughs> I turned around and the archivist was right behind me with my next order of things and just was kind of looking at me like, what on earth? So it wasn't even that funny, but it was just getting caught watching RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> in the middle of the Scottish National Library while I'm reading children's books. Um, yeah, that was that was fun. I, th- I think that is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I do think, like, it was so season six, so it was a good season. Oh, um, yeah, true. <laughs> Bianca. That's that's why I tend to go to the library, though, because I feel kind of shamed at, like, switching to things because I don't want to, like, show everyone what I'm watching and stuff like that. you got to find the spot that's facing oh, where, yeah. your, where your back is to the wall. Otherwise, they're going to look at a lot of random stuff. <laughs> no, no, if I'm going to watch a video, I'll, like, take out my phone. that's certainly interesting (laughs) (laughs) it's a window into my priorities in life (laughs) it goes goes drag race and then way way down (laughs) it's my phd (laughs) sounds like my friday mornings i'm supposed to be in work but the new episode's out (laughs) see i i tend to kind of save up my my problem is that i'm incapable of watching tv series is like one episode at a time oh you're a binger i i don't i don't like it it's not a nice experience for me (laughs) because i'm like you're not telling me what happens next that's just mean (laughs) so i tend to like save up until there are like at least two or three and and then i watch it like that i hate teasers teasers should not (laughs) exist Why are you telling me there is drama if you're not telling me what the drama is? Because there's not drama. They always manipulate it. Mm. I mean, it's RuPaul's Drag Race. There's always a lot of drama. That is true. (laughs) It's it's usually exaggerated, though. Yeah. Like, in in the teaser. (laughs) Well, see, my problem with teasers, especially on TV, is if it's a comedy show, they will show you all the funniest moments, Mm. and then all the funniest moments are spoiled. That's true. Yeah. All the best jokes you've already heard. What's the point of watching it? <laughs> she makes a good point. I always make good points. That's why I'm doing a PhD. <laughs> oh, I can't argue with that. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't always make good points. I, I... Imposter syndrome. <laughs> Shut it down. Your points are the best. 
Your, your points are the best. Should be like a hashtag that we. <laughs> I'm gonna print it out and stick it on your desk area for when you come back. <laughs> oh yeah, I cleared out the desk for the field work today, um, and it was kind of sad. Where are you going? I'm I'm just going home. Oh, okay. um, but I'm going to do some archival work. Nice. Um, and I keep having to point out to my parents that I'm going back home to work, work. not to chill and hang um, out. Well, th- they already have tickets to like four plays to see with me. <laughs> Oh, life's so hard, Anna. I know, difficult. <laughs> so, well, Courtney, thank you very much for being our guest today and thank for taking you for having the, me. the time. It's been wonderful to get to know you and hear about your research. Best of luck with the rest of this year and getting everything in in September. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, we've, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have everything crossed for you for the coming time. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All right. All right, thank bye. You. bye. Oh, so. Thank you very much for listening to Anna's FB. Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at nsfppodcast. Have an adequately happy existence.